0: This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by U.S. Bank. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about food all the time. One day I'm craving Texas barbecue, the next day it's cast-iron skillet fried chicken. Wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave, whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home? Or takeout, I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork egg foo young sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery and two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com slash Altitude Go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go card. Learn more at usbank.com slash altitude go. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by Capital One Saver Card. Earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment, 2% at grocery stores, and 1% on all other purchases now when you go out you cash in what's in your wallet terms apply welcome to special sauce 2.0 serious eats podcast about food and life every week on special sauce we begin with ask kenji where kenji lopez alt serious eats chief culinary consultant gives the definitive answer to the question of the week that a serious eater like you has sent us.
1: I don't know how to describe it without being completely unappetizing, but it's, it's like a sludge, mm-hmm. you know? So that's what happens when the meat, when you cook ground meat and break it up with a lot of liquid. It breaks up much, much finer.
0: After Ask Kenji, a conversation with our guest, Adam Chandler.
1: Carlin Sanders of KFC fame
2: was selling fried chicken at a gas station in southeastern Kentucky for 20 years of his life. My favorite story is, of course, that he shot one of his gas station rivals. And finally,
0: on today's podcast, a teachable moment from the Serious Eats test kitchen.
3: Basically, you can use toasted sugar in any recipe that calls for white sugar. It's a great way to reduce sweetness and add complexity to your favorite recipes.
0: First up, our chief culinary consultant, author of the Food Lab, Kenji Lopez-Alt. And Kenji, Serious Eater Nick Basto wants to know, if we can't brown minced meat before the adding tomato step, why do we still have to cook it? Is it to avoid some sort of protein clumping? In which case, could we just break it up with a fork after cooking, especially when pressure cooking? Too scared to test this in case I waste an entire potful. full.
1: <laughs> um, so that's a good question. Um, almost every recipe for, you know, say like a bolognese sauce or, or just a basic American style meat sauce um, or chili um, will have you, quote unquote, brown the ground beef before you add the liquids or add some of Sometimes you'll add onions after that. Um, Usually what they really mean is that cook it until it's no longer pink. The main reason we do that um, is twofold. So part, part of it is a lot of recipes will have you sort of drain the meat um, after you brown it. So that initial first step is sort of to render excess fat, um, fat that would make the final dish taste sort of greasy. Um, you know, some dishes you can leave it in, a bolognese sauce you could leave it in, but uh, something like a chili, you'd probably want to drain it a little bit. Um, so that allows you to do that without draining away all the other aromatics. Um more importantly, though, it is a textural element. So if you go on Serious Eats, we have a recipe for a chili sauce. Um, so it's not chili, but it's chili sauce, and it's designed for going on top of burgers, hot dogs. Um, and in that recipe, what we actually do is we take the the meat. We don't brown it at all. We add our liquid to it, and we kind of break the meat up in the liquid. And the texture you get from that is completely, completely different. It's almost like a very, very smooth paste that you get when you do it that way you know like a, a very chunky paste um so rather than um a chili texture where you have sort of big chunks of meat um that are kind of bound in a sauce you end up with a sort of much looser um i don't know how to describe it without being completely unappetizing but it's, it's like a sludge mm-hmm. you know <laughs> so that's what happens when the meat when you cook meat with a lot of liquid uh, ground meat and break it up with a lot of liquid it breaks up much much finer and you don't really get that sort of um chunky texture that you want in a in a ground beef chili. Got it. With most of these things, also, it it doesn't hurt. It honestly doesn't hurt to try. Like, it's not going to ruin it. Like, you you might end up with something different from what you're used to, but you know, all the flavors are going to be there.
0: Nick will not be wasting an entire potful. Nick's
1: in good shape now. All right.
2: The more and more I wrote about fast food, the more I got a sense that there was something more there to it.
0: Today, we are once again talking to Adam Chandler, author of Drive Through Dreams: A Journey Through the Heart of America's Fast Food Kingdom. Tell us about the process of writing drive Through Dreams. How did it come about?
2: It's a Talmudic question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, okay. I, I think that uh, with, with, with no clear answer, um, I can kind of connect the dots backwards, but I can't really connect them forwards. The, the process started, I, I think, because I was looking into the history of it and I was studying it and... I just kind of thought, you know, this is a fascinating topic, and I, I guess I, I feel differently about it than a lot of people do. I'd like to give this a shot. Uh, I also saw it as a really convenient way to talk about American division. And so this the process of, of writing the book started in 2015, which feels like a lifetime ago. And I, I wrote a draft of the book, and the election happened, and I had to rewrite the book because I think that what I was hoping to highlight were sort of cultural differences that seem light and whimsical and a, a little less serious uh, than I than I mean them to. And um, after the election, I think the way we talk about food, and the way we talk about everything, the, the way we talk about everything. But uh, I think you know one of the one of the lesser explored aspects of of, um, of Trump's victory is how it resonates in food and. Fast food was a huge part of his campaign. He would tweet pictures of himself eating McDonald's on a plane, having a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken um, with you know a knife and fork and a copy of the Wall Street Journal. And I think he really successfully used the cultural significance, uh, the the status of fast food as a cultural signifier of of something that wasn't elite, to. Um, to telegraph this everyman quality. Right. It was it was extremely successful. Here is a maligned industry that, you know, coastal elites kind of thumb their nose at. And again, I'm speaking very broadly here, but so was he. And uh, even though he's, you know, a thrice married billionaire and a real estate mogul, he was the guy eating fried chicken and McDonald's on the plane. And he had this real honesty to it. He He means it. One of the few things I think he really truly yeah, needs yeah. is his love of fast food. That,
0: right, is that was the the one maybe real connection to a lot of his supporters. Exactly. Not one that he created.
2: Yes. But one that actually existed before he ran for president. Right. And so I, I think there's a really big problem with uh, the way that that some criticism of fast food, which is valid and and necessary in a lot of ways— Comes off, and so uh, when I when I wrote the second draft of the book, I kind of I, I had to look more at the history of of fast food as as something that is kind of central to the country. It really follows American history closely. You can explain it in in a way that makes sense over the decades. Yeah, and that
0: that was the one of the most interesting and convincing parts of your book. Fast food is is not just a metaphor, but a signifier. Yes. For the changes, macro changes going on in American culture. Yes. The book starts with White Castle, right? right? And goes right up to the present day. You don't get in the Popeye's fried chicken, but, you know, there's (laughs) certain limitations to book
1: publishing. Right.
0: You thought you were signing a contract to do this sort of whimsical, intelligent take on fast food. And then all of a sudden it's like,
2: holy. That's 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 a direct quote. That's exactly what I said. (laughs)
0: And was
2: it your decision or did your editor suggest it? Uh, It took a little bit of doing, um, just sort of sorting out how do we respond to this? If this book is about Donald Trump, it has a very short shelf life. So taking a broad view of of fast food wasn't exactly where I thought I was going to go. The book was originally a road trip book. I started at the Gulf Coast near Whataburger was founded at, uh, in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is right on the Gulf of Mexico. And I wanted to drive all the way up to the Great Lakes where Ray Kroc founded his first McDonald's. And this would be the two unsung coasts of America. And instead of doing it kind of chronologically as a road trip, it became chronologically as American history. And I really have to credit my editor for that. Uh, her name's Bryn Clark. She's amazing for for helping me kind of bring that into, into being um, in a way that I think Fulfilled the book's potential promise, Um, so I wish I could claim that it's my brilliant brainchild. But (laughs) But I'm lucky to have a brilliant editor. The way you
0: the way you executed it is what really stood out to me because, again, you straddle this line. It's like I take fast food. I take what I do seriously. Fast food is a signifier and a metaphor for everything that's going on in the culture, good, bad, and indifferent.
2: Yes. Right. Absolutely. You can really trace. I mean, you can really trace it from whether it is the fact that Americans were becoming more mobile and, and driving Model T's and wanting food that was quick and easy to go, um, which is relates to the White Castle phenomenon in the 20s. You know, this is 100 years ago and wanting familiar experiences, wanting something that seemed safe. We didn't trust meat. We'd all read the jungle um, and were afraid of ground beef. And so to have a, a a restaurant and eventually a chain produce the exact same experiences over and over again in stores that look the exact same was comforting. And now that could not be less comforting at all. We want personalized. <laughs> right. It sounds dystopian to go into a place and say, I'm going to have the exact same experience wherever I go. It's going to look the same. But a hundred years ago, that was a huge relief. And then, yeah, following the, following it through World War II, prosperity, uh, post war life, and the baby boom, and the building of the highways and the building of the suburbs. Fast food was a product, in a lot of ways, of the suburbs. And then you you talk about in the book that in many ways,
0: Colonel Sanders represented the American dream. Sure, made manifest.
2: All of the fast food founders have these amazing stories. It it. it blew my mind to really go into the biographies of, of, of these founders because they're not what you would expect. It's, for such a sort of corporatized um, industry, you have all of these mom and pop kind of uh, founders who, you know, Dave Thomas of Wendy's fame, he was an orphan and he was out on his own trying to work when he was 12 years old. Harlan Sanders of KFC fame was selling fried chicken at a gas station in southeastern Kentucky for 20 years of his life. He wasn't successful until late in life. And uh, even when you point out, even when he sold out, he didn't optimize his, right. all his time. Right. He's a great American character uh, of someone who just kept trying and kept trying and kept trying and found success very unexpectedly and very late in life. And he was a perfectionist and he was A cantankerous man. So he's a great character. Um, My favorite story is, of course, that he shot one of his gas station rivals in southeastern Kentucky, which is... (laughs) (laughs) He actually got into a feud over, uh, you know, roadway uh, traffic being diverted from a station and shot a guy. (laughs) But didn't go to jail? He didn't go to jail. was in self-defense. And the man who he fired upon was a guy named Matt Stewart. And Matt Stewart had uh, saw Colonel Sanders and a couple of shell executives approaching and uh, Matt Stewart was painting over one of Colonel Sanders signs and uh, he fired his gun at the three men and he hit one of them and killed him. Um, And then the colonel grabbed his gun and fired back and knocked this guy down. And he went to jail, and he died under very mysterious circumstances. Wow. Uh, apparent... The guy
0: who shot one of the three guys that, that the colonels shot at in self-defense. Right.
2: The the legend is that uh, one of the shell executives paid off a deputy or a sheriff to kill the killer in jail, which is <laughs> this, right. amazing. Now, this is stuff it's... you can't prove, so that's why it wasn't in the book. Right. Exactly. I could only say the legend—you know, you can only print the legend so many times before you get yourself into trouble. Right. But, um, Even, you know, the rest of these, uh, the rest of these fast food founders have these overwhelmingly similar stories. Uh, Glenn, Glenn Bell of Taco Bell fame, you know, rode the rails looking for work and they all served in the army. Um, Al Copeland of Popeye's fame grew up in the first public housing unit in the apartment in the uh, in, in the country. Tom
0: Monahan yes. from
2: Domino's Pizza yes. grew
0: up in an orphanage in Ann Arbor. I exactly. Believe.
2: That's right. That's right. There are so many of those stories. And you know, that that actually that's that's one of the through lines. Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man, works Saturday shift at McDonald's. You know, we talk about um the American dream is pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. We have all these characters even in Lynn Manuel Miranda is um, another person who worked. Jay Leno, a lot of politicians. Paul Ryan talks about working at McDonald's. Yeah. Um, and this is all feeds into this ideology of, you know, you start off at a McDonald's, you work, you learn, you learn what it means to work hard, and you build, you build up these skills, and you build up your ambition, and then you go out into the world, you make a difference.
0: Yeah. And you told that story of the Pakistani yes immigrant yes um, who started. Churches, was it
2: he started as a dishwasher what at was churches, his name? Aslam Khan? This is one of those amazing stories of someone who grew up in a village in northwest Pakistan with no electricity and no running water and eventually made his way to a, a city, worked in a U.S. embassy club as a waiter, came to the United States, thought I can be a manager at this church's chicken. Um, they looked at his experience and were not impressed, despite having you know tons of service experience. So he said, you know what, I'm going to start as a dishwasher. And uh, his favorite quote, of mine at least, was, you know, it took me 18 years to get to America and 13 years to become a millionaire. And we love stories like this because this is what we're taught from a young age is that this self-reliance myth, this pull yourself up by your bootstraps, American sort of ideology is something that we treat as as a religion here. And It's not as true as it once was, obviously. No, that was what I was
0: about to say. If you look at the new chains, Shake Shack was started by Danny Meyer, whom I love, but he didn't grow up in an orphanage, you know, uh, or even the guys from Sweetgreen, whom I also really admire, but these were, you know, children of the upper middle class, for sure. This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by Capital One Saver Card. With the Capital One Saver card, you earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on milkshakes with the kids and 4% on music with your pals. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Talking to Adam Chandler, author of drive through Dreams: A Journey through the Heart of America's Fast Food Kingdom, do you think it's still possible these days to to grow a fast food operation by pulling yourself up from your bootstraps?
2: I think it's possible. I just think it's it's so much harder and even if you look at uh just the age that the the trope of a of, of a teenager working for pocket money is something that people like to trot out a lot. You know, at a fast food restaurant, but the average age of a fast food worker is 26 or 29, depending on who you ask. And that's not somebody who is probably in the same aspirational phase that you are when you're a teenager. This is probably somebody trying to make a living, feed a family and, and, and um, have some stability. And so it's much more difficult to imagine that person ascending with the same ease that you could. Yeah. 20 or 30 years ago.
0: And McDonald's has adopted all this mythology with this, you know, like with the ad about America's best first job, you know, with the kid being accepted into college. And in the book, you actually talk about this elderly woman. Yes. Which I thought was a fascinating story because, like, I didn't think of that. And it's like this woman just tell us about her because she didn't want to be lonely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There is there is something about fast food restaurants that I think uh, exploring really brought out for me, which is that they are this place where anyone can go. And, you know, the statistics kind of back it up, 80 percent of Americans eat fast food every month and 96 percent eat fast food every year, which is more people than participate on the Internet. And the CDC rings its hands a lot about over a third of Americans eat fast food every day on a given day. Over a third of America will eat fast food. But uh, their their sort of status as places where anyone can go, where there's no barrier to entry is really important. You know, if you go to a place in a rural town, whether it's a Dairy Queen or a Burger King or whatever it is, you'll see people gathering at nine o'clock in the morning, catching up with their friends over a cup of coffee. There's. They can they, hang out as long as they want, and, and they, there's no barrier to entry, yeah. and uh, it's it's a special place in that in that way. And so, in the book, I talked to a 93 year old McDonald's worker. Her name's Sarah Dappen, and she'd started working at McDonald's when she was 87.
0: So she, she you know, she
2: was America's best, one of the last jobs. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it's surprising because. A lot of seniors are 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 a lot of older Americans are going into work at fast food restaurants either to supplement their income because the safety net isn't what it once was, or you can continue working a low wage job and still get social security benefits. Also because younger Americans stopped working teenage, you know, shift jobs in the way they used to, as they sort of have collected internships or tried to move on to college and things like that. So fewer teens are working fast food jobs and more seniors need these jobs. But also it's not just a place for seniors to hang out or work it's a place for them to socialize a senior center is not a place for intergenerational mingling you are sectioned off by age mm-hmm. and it, it's generally an unpleasant place to be um by you know many accounts so a fast food restaurant is different you have all ages there you have all ethnicities all groups just kind of doing whatever it is they want to do there and that Means of sense of community, even if it's kind of a haphazardly set community. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's fascinating because after reading the book, uh, I realized that fast food joints are really the ultimate third places yes. in American culture, the most democratic third places, and by a third place we mean the place people congregate besides work and home. Exactly. Right. The third place was actually Ray Oldenburg's book, and it was actually called The Great Good Place, Great and it Good was place. published in 1989.
2: 1989.
0: Yeah. You also talk about the role that fast food plays in um, the inner city, mm-hmm. and I was fascinated by that because one of the things that you pointed out was that in Watts, after the riots, that the McDonald's were not touched. right and i thought that was a strong signal right yes. that mcdonald's had come to mean almost a safe gathering place and it wasn't seen as this exploitative business
2: exactly the story is that in the 1992 watts riots there was a you know a huge 5 mile riot and fire zone where almost all the businesses were destroyed and the ones that were left standing were the mcdonald's and Black owned businesses, Korean owned businesses, a lot of a lot of uh, different businesses went up in flames or were destroyed or looted. And the McDonald's were somehow spared and it's funny because there's actually uh, you know Snopes, the internet debunking site has a has, had to create an entry because this seems like such an urban myth, but it's actually true. It is fascinating to to see these places just because they welcome everybody broadly speaking, as a place where you can go even in a time of crisis. So I, I went to the McDonald's in Ferguson. Right, because um,
0: you talk about Ferguson, right, which was many years, obviously, after the Watts riot. Yeah. And again, the one place that wasn't looted or you know, set on fire or whatever was the McDonald's in
2: Ferguson, which is where Michael Brown died. Right. Even in New York, we had Occupy Wall Street, Zuccotti Park. The Burger King and the McDonald's there served as a you know a place for the activists to meet or hang out when it got rainy or cold and they were welcomed in there there no one was shutting them out. they needed to use the bathrooms they they wanted to get a meal and so again it 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 serves as this this third place even under extraordinary circumstances forgetting the totally banal regular everyday life things, even in a moment of crisis, it is a place where people go,
0: yeah. You wrote um, in the last chapter, you described fast food as addictive, unnatural, majestic, and gratifying, (laughs) which I thought was a wonderful juxtaposition of adjectives to describe fast food. What did you
2: mean by them? Well, it's hard to be universally in love with fast food. It's such a complicated thing, and it's representative of so many things that are negative about American society and reflective of of bad policymaking and of inequality. But it also has this fun, imaginative spirit. There's so much ritual and comfort tied up in the experience of eating fast food. And it really is this equalizer in a way that that's really poignant, at least I feel. And walking around uh, different places, talking to people, everyone has a kind of story about when and where they used to go or where and when they still go, whether it's, you know, I'm going to the airport and I'm going to have something before I get on a plane. That's my that's my go to or. Um. Every summer, I go back to this uh, place called Maid Right in Iowa, which has a loose beef sandwich, which is delicious. Right? I went
0: to Grinnell College. Yeah.
2: I know all about made right. Exactly, exactly. And I'm not
0: sure they're delicious, but they're iconic.
2: That should be a tagline for, <laughs> <laughs> for most fast food. I'm not sure it's delicious, but it's iconic. Yeah, even chicken nuggets over the years. But it's really fun to have a common reference point, and there are so few common reference points, especially – Especially today, media is fracturing, politics are fractured. There are, are so few ways to engage with people, but fast food is one of those monoliths that really provide a, a baseline. So I love having conversations with people about it. You know, a lot, of, a lot of writers get tired of their topics, but the stories I hear on the road of people who, um, or people who just email me kind of out of the blue to tell me a story about what was meaningful to them it never it never fails to surprise me and it also it also makes me feel great. I can I can relate to it and you know, you can't ask for more than that. Yeah.
0: Sounds like you, you actually still have more to say about fast food.
2: <laughs> well, this is why I need an editor, which is important, <laughs> uh, because I, I could have, you know, I could have written four hundred more pages about <laughs> all the random aspects of it and um the things that that I think are are fascinations of mine and maybe not fascinations of others. But uh, yeah, the, it, it's an endless universe. You have to draw a line somewhere. There are so many different chains. You know, I, I've gotten emails from people who told me, you know, you, you didn't write about my, you know, three chain uh, burger joint in um, southern North Dakota or right. something like that, you know, that that I, I couldn't have found and nobody would have recognized. But um, I did my best. But uh, I also think that you have to draw a line at a certain point because I could talk about this forever. It's an endless universe. Everyone has amazing – there are so many commercials over the years. There are so many mythologies over yeah. the years. There are so many different aspects of the, of the universe. It's a so huge. A lot of huge. people
0: don't know that Dr. John did all these all those Popeye's Right, ads,
2: right. Which is awesome. I produced a couple of Dr. John solo albums. Oh, my so God. I... Are you serious? That's amazing. So R.I.P., Dr. John. Uh,
0: so you wrote this great paragraph on the – I think it's the second to last page in the book where you say – As the social fibers fray, as fights are waged in impersonal isolation, thicketed by social, digital, geographic, and economic divisions, there will be fast food. As diners fluent in the pieties about ethical food systems watch someone with no paid sick leave and no health insurance meticulously stir their $22 polenta as the fast, casual quinoa dispensaries go cashless and leave more people behind, there will be fast food against our better interests and angels there will be fast food come on man that's good you're
2: good you're good man <laughs> well thank you i appreciate that and again this is this is an editor shaping uh shaping a lot a lot of you know gibberish into into those beautiful paragraphs so i can't take full credit yeah. but thank you i appreciate a that a good
0: editor like for serious Cedar, i had this 25 year old wonderkin editor at Penguin portfolio, and it made all the difference in the world. It was just like, because I was like you, especially like, you're writing a memoir, like I could write 300 more pages about my life. <laughs> I don't know that anyone would be interested. Right. But it's true, and by the way, it's not always true, as we know, as writers, yes. about editors. There are editors who make your writing better. Mm-hmm. There are editors who make your writing the same. Mm-hmm. And then there are more... Often than not, there are editors who make your writing
2: worse. It's true. It's true. But uh, you know, we have to celebrate the good ones and hope that the uh that the others I mean I was I also have done a, a fair share of editing, so I've tried my best in, in tough circumstances and it, circumstances for editors are only getting harder these yeah, days. It's so true. um I, I respect I respect the work they do no matter what.
0: So now it's time for the special sauce all you can answer buffet. Oh gosh. So so who's at your last supper? No family allowed.
2: How many do I choose? Yeah, four, four, four. or five. Four or five. Okay. Uh, well, I'm gonna right off the bat. Colonel Sanders has to be there. <laughs> um, that was a given. I that was a gimme. That doesn't even count. Well, he's mm. he's this great storyteller, and he's such a maniac, and also the food would be phenomenal. I assume that you know he would <laughs> he would go back into the in, into the kitchen and make some things happen. So uh, he would absolutely be there. Such a fascinating figure. Um, Many books have been written about him. Joshua Ozersky wrote a really great book about him called The Colonel. So I would absolutely put put the Colonel at the table. Um, you know, I'm going to tell on myself here. Philip Roth is a, obviously a huge uh, influence on my on, on on me as a reader and as a writer. Um, I would love to have him laugh at the Colonel, kernel, the j- Colonel's jokes and tell some of his own. Um, let's see. No family. Um, it's so hard. Bum Phillips is uh, an old <laughs> Texas football coach that, you know, I grew up kind of idolizing. Um, All right. So he would absolutely be in the mix. Bum
1: Phillips,
0: Philip Roth, The oh, Colonel Sanders. Oh, uh, this
2: is so terrible. Uh, <laughs> and- Bella Abzug. I'm just going to throw that in there just to... <laughs> Just this is,
0: I need to come to this This dinner, would be a man. lot of
2: fun you know you need you need some you need a real mix of, of political and, and, and spiritual minds and um, how about music Music. Um, you did write about Billy Joel in a hilarious way I but, love Billy Joel I don't know I don't think I want him at dinner I think that would be I don't think that would be fun for a lot of people um, What about Nina Simone? Nina Simone, I love Nina Simone. Uh, I've written about Nina Simone. Um I don't think she would enjoy the table, to be honest. I think she, she would
0: she didn't enjoy I, a lot of things.
2: Yeah, I don't think she would love that table that I've assembled here. Um and neither would Fiona Apple, who I also like. Uh Casey Musgraves. She's great. Um, all right. that's I think that would be that would be the right note between um pop country and all of the things kind of contained at this table. Got it.
0: I love this table. So what are you eating?
2: <laughs> uh we are eating well, the colonel's cooking, reading fried chicken. Although, someone I read, I read somewhere that his actual favorite food was hamburgers. That's like a whispered legend. I don't know if that's actually true. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's going to be a cheeseburger. Cheeseburger is my is my go to. The way that okay. I, people, I'll have a cheeseburger when I'm hungry. The way that people will have a slice of pizza when they're hungry. Right. All right. So probably a burger.
0: Are there fries?
2: Oh sure. Okay. Have to be.
0: And what's for dessert?
2: Dessert McFlurries for all. <laughs> Someone recently made fun of me cuz I said one of my my favorite desserts is is a sugar cookie. I I just the simplicity of it really really does it for me and I I'm not I'm not even trying to be precious about it. I just I, right, I grew I like up eating this. sugar cookies. Um you know, and, and apple pie is also, a, yeah. a, a tart tartine or something like that. So what are you listening to? Um I'm trying to think of what would go well with this crowd. This is this is where the you know the guilty you know neurotic Jewish entertainer in me comes out because I'm I I would put my the music that I would put on at a dinner party is not the music that I that I think everyone would necessarily like. That's okay. So, Just
0: what would the music that you would put
2: on? Oh boy. Um
0: It's Your Last Supper.
2: Yeah, you're right. Okay. It is my it is my Last Supper. It is my Last Supper. Um I probably put on some George Harrison. Okay, I think that's probably what I would end up doing. I feel like that's a nice melancholy way to lead myself out of this life. Pre Beatles um, or post Beatles? Post Beatles. Okay. Um, he recorded all the, all those tracks that the Beatles didn't want, and it became Beware of Darkness, which is one of the greatest albums I think you know ever ever made. It's just a compilation of all these amazing songs that the Beatles were like, eh, we didn't really want, we do not really want that. So I right. think that would probably be on the list. Traveling
0: um, Wilburys songs might
2: be. Yeah, sure. I mean that. That gets me, you know. That gets me everybody. That gets yeah. me. A, that gets me a big collection of people. So, yeah, that would be fun. So, give me three books that have influenced your life. Three books. Uh Sabbath Theater. I can't
0: believe it. I actually just read Sabbath Theater, which is this Philip Roth book that may be wildly funny and alternately disgusting.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think that that's just like looking at a, a master craft, um, sort of a perfect bookshelf. You know, it's sort of everything about that is All so right, strong. All so right, there's one. Willa Cather, my Antonia, I think is a classic, uh, brilliant. She's, you know, a wonderful writer. And um, I'm going to go with The Art of Fielding.
0: The Art of Fielding. Yeah, sure. Which is a recent novel which is by...
2: A... Chad Harbach. I could list I could list so many others it's again it's sort of like I think of this as desert island things that i i I have to have um you know to carry me through through boredom I think those those would be three three that's, great ways to go
0: that's good and um what about a nonfiction writer that's influenced your work
2: uh oh, I have to shout out um David Samuels uh, who writes about anything and everything um from politics to art. He is a really great mind and has kind of been a mentor of mine. Um, Where can people read his stuff? New Yorker. um, He wrote this great article about these jewel thieves uh, that he called the Pink Panthers that are uh, terrorizing sort of Central and Eastern Europe. uh, And it's an amazing story. He wrote a really great piece in Harper's about the Bronx Zoo. A sort of the weird history of the Bronx Zoo. He recently wrote a, something for, um, I forget where it was, but it was about Los Angeles' donut scene, the, sort of uh, an, an ethnography of, of Los Angeles donuts, That's which cool. is really, really cool and something you never think about. Um, so he's a big favorite of mine.
0: Yeah. So it's just been declared Adam Chandler Day. <laughs> okay. All over the world. What's happening on that day?
2: Well, a lot of people are confused because Adam Chandler is the name of a famous soap opera character. Yes, this
0: is true. I discovered that when I first Googled you. <laughs> right.
2: So uh, there are a lot of affairs happening. There's a lot of fratricide and, and all <laughs> kinds of things. It's It's chaos. It's pure chaos. That's what's happening it's on Adam pure. Chandler Day. Um, he had, I think, four or five marriages and eight or nine kids, five of whom survived. Uh, so for the, the soap opera set, that's total anarchy. And for the younger set, I think there's a confusion about whether it's meant to be Adam Sandler Day, um, which is another one that I, you know, that I have to live with. So uh, other than that, whatever else happens on Adam Chandler Day uh, is definitely sitting on a couch, ordering Seamless, um, feeling guilty about both of those things, and then maybe going outside for a walk (laughs) and hopefully getting some writing done. Got it. All right, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So,
0: but everyone's writing and ordering seamless, or just just you.
2: I like to imagine everybody having a good day while I'm doing that. Got um, it. That's 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 what I hope is happening. But if if everyone wants a flavor of what you know my life is often like, that's what happens at Got Adam it. Chandler Day. So thank you
0: so <laughs> much for sharing your special sauce with us, Adam Chandler. Thank you for having a me. Not the soap opera star. <laughs> By all means, check out Drive Through Dreams. As I said, it's probably my favorite book about fast food of all time. It's really awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And now it's time to head over to the Serious Eats Test Kitchen, where our pastry wizard, Stella Parks, author of Brave Tart Iconic American Desserts, will lead us through the creation of a killer confection. By the way, no need to take notes. Detailed recipe is at seriouseats.com along with a video.
3: Toasted sugar is a form of light caramel made by heating plain white sugar in a low oven for several hours. The result is a golden sugar that tastes less sweet, with a toasty caramel flavor that can range from light and subtle to dark and nutty. Basically, you can use toasted sugar in any recipe that calls for white sugar. It's a great way to reduce sweetness and add complexity to your favorite recipes. This is some specific directions for toasting a four-pound bag of sugar. I'm pretty specific about the amount of sugar and the pan size, and the reason is you can make a really big mess otherwise. So the key is to use a nine by 13 glass or ceramic baking dish, not metal. If it's metal, it's gonna cook too fast around the edges and heat too much, and the sugar's gonna liquefy and turn to a very dark caramel around the sides, and we don't want that. So just spread it into kind of an even layer. If you see any lumps that are in the sugar, you can kind of mash them out, but they'll work themselves out over time anyway. Once that's done, I'm gonna pop it into a 300 degree oven and I'm gonna let it go for five or six hours. You don't have to let it go that long. You can go anywhere from two to four hours, longer, shorter. Two hours is what I consider a good minimum for a four pound bag of sugar. Water is produced as a byproduct of this transformation, so it's important to stir the sugar frequently and thoroughly to give the steam a chance to escape. Otherwise, the steam will be reabsorbed by the sugar, causing it to clump and harden or even melt. Four pounds of heaviness, okay. So when stirring the sugar, the goal is to get all of the really hot sugar from the edges away from the edges and into the middle, and the sugar that's not as hot in the middle towards the edges. So it's not just a, Wiggling the spoon in there, that's not really enough. You wanna really stir it around. So it's been five hours. It's very toasty. It's actually on the verge of wanting to start to clump and melt. The toastier the sugar gets, the more it needs stirring and the more the steam needs to escape. We wanna cool the sugar to complete room temperature before we put it away for storage. As long as it's warm, it's a sign it may be holding on to some steam still and that will cause it to clump and harden in storage. But as long as it's cooled completely and stirred so the steam can be released, then it will store granular and dry and easy to use.
0: Again, details of Stella Park's recipe are at SeriousEats.com. More from our test kitchen next time. I'm Ed Levine, and that's Special Sauce for today. Do send in those questions for Kenji. The address is special sauce at SeriousEats.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time,
3: Serious Eaters. This episode of Special Stalls is brought to you by U.S. Bank.
0: If you're anything like me, you're thinking about food all the time. One day I'm craving Texas barbecue. The next day it's cast iron skillet fried chicken. Wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave, whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home or takeout? I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork egg foo young sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery, and two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com slash Altitude Go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go card. Learn more at usbank.com slash Altitude Go. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply.